All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios, like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else, from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From Luminary Media, WNYC Studios, and Stable Genius Productions, this is Note to Self. I pledge allegiance to the flag. Most kids in the U.S. still start the day saying the Pledge of Allegiance. These are students at the Brody Middle School in Des Moines, Iowa. But what does it mean to be a citizen of a country? Well, here in the U.S., it means following a set of rules that make society function, like stopping at red lights, paying taxes, not marrying more than one person at a time. That's the law. But also, there are cultural norms that we live by, right? Like, you don't get into an elevator and then stand right next to the one other person who's already in there, because that would be creepy. Or if you're sitting in a cafe, you don't take the fries off the plate of the guy next to you or slurp the foam off his cappuccino just because it looks yummy. We know not to do these things. And there are consequences if we do. But what if you lived somewhere without any laws or boundaries, without niceties and norms? Kind of a nightmare, right? Well, guess what? You already live there every time you go online. We've had all these conversations with our kids, with our students, with community leaders, with churches, about what type of people we're supposed to be in a physical space. But we're not having those same conversations in a virtual space. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and this is Note to Self, the tech show about being human. And I truly believe the next generation is going to be so much smarter about how to conduct themselves online. But only if we grown-ups get our acts together right now. This is an all-hands-on-deck moment. One of the people leading the charge is Richard Kulada. I am the CEO of the International Society for Technology and Education. ISTE, as it's called, counts tens of thousands of teachers around the globe as its members. Maybe someone you know or you are a member. And ISTE's role is to help educators use tech the right way. So ISTE started about uh, 40 years ago, been around for a while, and its role has really been to think about how we can help support schools, K-12, higher ed, in being more innovative. Richard left the classroom to become the state of Rhode Island's chief innovation officer. He then joined the Obama administration, leading the Office of Educational Technology at the U.S. Department of Education. Now, as CEO of ISTE, and a father of four, he says the good news is that most schools, 98%, have access to technology. And there are curricula and standards on how to use that technology to collaborate and build and do research. But there's not much out there 
no consensus or guidelines for how to teach kids to be good citizens in the digital world, how to live well online. Yeah, there's not. There's really not, which is frankly why we're trying to start this kind of national movement around having these conversations. Uh. And part of the challenge, Manoush, is that it is not quite as easy as saying, here's a curriculum to teach. It's not something you can just add on as a lesson. It's a culture shift. Mm. It's a culture shift for how we prepare students to be successful in the virtual world that they're going to be stepping into when they step out of school. So Richard and ISTE and a coalition of experts that they're working with have started to lay the groundwork. They've identified five core competencies that they think any digital citizen should have. And as we go through them, dear grown-up, consider how competent you are in these categories. Okay, so number one, alert. I am aware of my online actions, and I know how to be safe and create safe spaces for others— Online. I hear all this anti-cyberbullying rhetoric. Yeah. And I love the in- intent behind it, right? I absolutely get the intent. But we don't teach other things in an anti-way, right? We, we don't teach, like, anti-illiteracy. We teach kids to love to read. <laughs> and, and so instead of teaching anti-cyberbullying, why not teach kids to be good cyber friends and help create an environment that everyone feels safe and comfortable in? Richard says to think about number one, alert, as being about more than just don't be a jerk online or post pictures you'll regret, or even not choosing 123456 as the password to your Gmail account. While that's true, like I don't want people posting pictures they're going to regret, and I don't want them being a jerk online, it's a very negative frame. And it sort of sets out a list of all the things that technology can do that's bad, as opposed to teaching how to use these tools to be effective members of your community in a virtual space. Thinking of life online as a community brings us to number two. Inclusive. I am open to hearing and respectfully recognizing multiple viewpoints, and I engage with others online with respect and empathy. We know from learning science, we know from the way the brain works, that it's really hard to transfer learning from one context to another. Hmm. So somebody who has been taught and has practiced being respectful of somebody who has a differing viewpoint in a physical space may go into a virtual space and be incredibly mean or intolerant Hmm. because they have not had that experience of practicing that conversation about what does it mean to be tolerant in a virtual space. And those skills don't necessarily transfer. And just look at any comment section on any website in case you're not sure of that. Okay, so teaching kids to use language online that opens up a conversation doesn't shut it down like, I hear what you're saying and you see things differently. Right? But look, let's not confuse opinion with fact and digital citizenship competency number three informed. I evaluate the accuracy, perspective, and validity of digital media and social media posts. One teacher that I talked to recently said that her commitment to doing a better job of teaching digital citizenship was to cite all of the information that she shows to her class 
on the screen. So she said, you know, in the past, I would just go grab images and grab stats, and I would just put them together and make a presentation, and I would share it to my students. And she said, you know, that's fine if my goal is to get content to them. If my goal is to model good digital citizenship, Mm. I need to start citing all of my sources and talking about how I chose these sources versus other sources. It just becomes part of the conversation. Sourcing. Knowing that Wikipedia doesn't always get the facts right. Which brings us to number four. Being aware of when you've had your fill of online time. Number four is balanced. I make informed decisions about how to prioritize my time and activities online and off. We talk to our kids about eating and about what they can eat. Right, we don't have eat time rules. Right, we don't have like you have three minutes of eat time in the hour or whatever. Like, no, of course not. We have we talk about what are foods that you can eat anytime in my family, anytime you want. You can drink water and you can eat fruit anytime. So if I, you know, were to, to leave when my kids go off to school or when they're at their friend's house, I know that they know how to eat pretty well, right? They kind of know. Generally, make a few mistakes. I know that, but they'll generally eat some good foods, some fun foods, and they'll be healthy. But then we go over to devices and we talk about screen time. And by making it so binary, by saying there's this on time and off time, we've taken away the nuance that they need to learn how to decide when is the device, when is the work that they're doing on the device, actually a really good use of a lot of time. And when is it not a good use of almost any of their time? Yeah, there's a difference between playing hours of Fortnite and spending hours using GarageBand to write a song with your friends, or using social media to try and right a wrong you see in the world. Which brings us to the final way to be a good digital citizen. Number five, engaged. I use technology and digital channels for civic engagement to solve problems and be a force for good in both physical and virtual communities. Now we have tools where a kid can actually take an issue that they care about and make a difference. They can share examples on social media. They can push and instigate and encourage other people to make good decisions. I think a great example of this is what we saw in Florida a little over a year ago now, right? Where you had students who were furious about lack of action around gun control and they couldn't vote. And yet they were very smart about using their access to media to make their voice heard and to get people who did vote and could vote very strongly behind them to actually make change happen. And so that idea of looking at this thing, this little piece of glass that we all have in front of us in our pockets as a tool to help other people make better decisions is a really powerful lens that we could be talking to our kids about Okay, so alert, inclusive, informed, balanced, and engaged. A-I-I-B-E. My daughter always uses mnemonics to remember things. So to remember these five traits of a good digital citizen, let's say all I invent better exist. Or all I insist best end. I don't know. Okay, anyway, the point is... Alert, inclusive, informed, balanced, and engaged, all these competencies. Richard says we are just at the start of turning these pretty basic and vague, let's be honest here, concepts into something usable by teachers and parents. 
there's a lot of hard work ahead. This is exactly why it's so tricky and, and exactly why it can't just be taught as, you know, lesson 13B on, you know, Friday the 27th, right? Like, it has to be a, a broader conversation because it means that we need to ask ourselves, what kind of people do we want to be online? There will definitely be people who feel different ways about what type of people they want to be in a virtual space. But right now, we're not even having that conversation. And I feel like it's a little bit like the story of you go to church and everybody's in there saying peace to each other and helping the little old ladies walk out the door. And then you see the somebody get in their car and drive out of the parking lot and start honking and <laughs> flipping the bird at people around them and cutting people off, right? Because because we get into a new space and we take on a different persona. And that's what happens in virtual spaces, right? We've had all these conversations. Just to push back a little here, it does seem a little rich at the idea of us adults trying, when we have definitely not figured out how to do a lot of these things, this idea of saying to kids, well, this is how it should be done. Like, where are we when it comes to agreeing in terms of educators about the best way to get kids to think analytically about their behavior online, the way that they are a person on the internet. That's such a great point. And I think that's an important distinction to make. It does not mean the fact that I think we as adults have a responsibility to make sure these conversations are happening, which we absolutely do, doesn't mean that we are the ones that have all of the answers for what it should be, right? <laughs> Again, look at our behavior, right? <laughs> like, we, like there's not a stellar examples all over the place of current adults using technology in these meaningful ways. And so I think if we can ask these questions and involve our kids, our students in the process, we will get to a much much, much better place than if we pretend that the sort of norms and expectations of the world that we've grown up in can suddenly just sort of be shoved into this very digital world and make sense. It's interesting that you say this because one of the things that I've heard, I wrote a book about the importance of boredom and rethinking our digital habits. And one of the things that I have heard from a lot of teachers is this idea that they have in the last sort of five years or so, had to start teaching things in their classroom that they had never had to teach before because Mm -hmm. they are in such tech-saturated environments and there are screens everywhere that they have to say, you know, when you speak to someone, this is called eye contact. It's when you look someone Mm -hmm. in the eye and that actually there's a lot of information that you can get from someone and understand how they feel. Or after we you read something, take time to reflect on the meaning of it instead of just going on to the next thing. Boredom, conversation, all of these sort of what were just basic human things that you did when we were growing up now have to be named and prioritized. There has to be space made for these things. That's kind of mind-blowing in some ways. Like it is shifting what it means to be a human being who learns in some ways. That's absolutely right. It also makes us need to think a little bit differently about how we talk about the role of the actual tech, the device in our lives. Mm. So even if we come down and make a decision about Instagram or another tool in, you know, just play it out a little bit and there'll be some new tool that will have replaced Instagram or whatever, right? So like the key is really to think about what are the underlying principles that we need to be talking about right? Helping our kids know what are the types of questions that they should be asking. And so in our family, we talk about the fact that no tech platform is free. 
You just get to choose whether you're going to pay for it with money or with data. And you can choose how much of your data it's worth to pay to get a service. Mm. And over time, we are working with educators, with parents, and with researchers to curate a whole variety of resources that you can go to to start to have these conversations. And to be clear, like, this is a coalition of organizations, all of which who are already in some ways doing things in this area. Is it just about bringing them all together? So the groups of people that are doing work in this space, there's really some phenomenal work that's already happening. But there are a couple challenges. One is they often use different language, right? And so one of our roles is to say, can we at least agree on some common language so that it can be helpful to understand who's doing what and when I can take advantage of a resource or program that somebody's created? That's one. But the other is to really help make sure that we are pushing this positive approach to digital citizenship. And there's some great materials that are out there, but still take a watch out. Don't, you know, I was looking on Amazon the other day and I saw a book that said, the book title was called The Boogeyman is in Your Pocket. And it was a book about helping parents talk to kids. Look, look, let me just tell you, if you're going to go in with that attitude and talk to your kids about how to use technology, like the conversation is over before you start. So some of this is just trying to say, let's take some really great resources that are available, but help make sure our language and our discussion about it is really pitched in a positive way that is, you know, a conversation that kids want to have and are excited to have, not one that feels like it's punitive. I mean, the way that you describe it almost makes me think about the grassroots organic food movement where, you know, no one could agree on what you call it's natural or homegrown or organic or pesticide-free, and then eventually things got organized and to say that your food was organic, you had to be certified in a certain way and standards were set. And then is that, where are we? Are we at the grassroots part of this digital citizenship movement? And how do we, what's the fully fledged version going to look like? How's it going to change the way we live? Yeah, we totally are at the sort of early stages here. And and part of it is, it's a great example that you use because there are people who, like me and, and others, you spend a lot of time living and breathing this stuff and asking these right. questions and thinking about what it means for the future, right? But I talk to parents all the time who are like, look, <laughs> I'm really busy and, and I'm in, just make it easier for me. And in the same way that that common agreement of that organic sticker made it easier for people who want to eat healthy, that want to support local farmers, but just don't have the time to go research all this stuff and whatever can make a good choice with less effort. That's exactly our goal. And, and, and you know what it will do in the future? I think we'll see. But what I know it has to do is it has to help us stop the fraying of our democracy. But if we don't, if we just simply allow us to continue moving forward, becoming these personas in a virtual space that aren't the type of people that we want to be, that aren't the people that create the world we want to live in, we're in trouble. We're in real trouble as a society, and we have to get ahead of that. So we hope that uh, everyone will take up their piece, their part of this movement, and help get the word out that we just need to be having a different conversation. And the nice part is, this is something we actually can do. Like, we can solve this. This isn't like a super complex, impossible problem. It is a solvable problem. It just means we need to think a little bit differently. Richard Kulata, thank you so, so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. So far, the partners for ISTE's digital citizenship program include the National Constitution Center, Common Sense Education, 
Google. You can see them all at digsitcommit.org. This episode is about young people. Well, coming up next week, seniors, older people. They've got a completely different relationship with tech. And it's not what you think. My husband, a long time ago, wanted me to get into computers. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. You know, it's too geeky. And here I am, a geek. How's that for a tease? Be sure to subscribe to Note to Self on Luminary and find out about all the stuff we're making at Stable Genius Productions by going to our website, StableG.com. The Note to Self team is Jen Poyant, Marcy Thompson, Matt Boynton, David Herman, Anya Zhezik, and Maria Wartell. Many thanks to Dan DeZula as well. Note to Self comes to you from Stable Genius Productions in partnership with WNYC Studios and Luminary Media. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and thank you so much for listening. Welcome to Fantasy Island.